This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Glory days. It was the time of Bruce Springsteen and uh, born in the USA, Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, the Natural, the Karate Kid, Purple Rain, and so much more. It was 1984, those glory days. And that is the title of a new book by John Wertheim, Glory Days, the Summer of 1984, and the 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. John, of course, executive editor, senior writer for Sports Illustrated, continuing correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes, and I like to call him a friend of the show. He's got that new book out, and we're delighted to have him on to talk about it. John joins us on the phone in New York City. Congratulations. Thanks. Friend of the show. Is you are. Cold. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> you Very are a friend of, of, uh, of our whole team. John, talk to us about this book. Take us back to 1984. You were a young kid then. I was a young kid then, but the, <laughs> uh, the tryouts for the 1984 Olympics team were held in my small town in Indiana. And uh, I, I wrote a piece about it and sort of developed this piece in, into the book. And it sort of struck me that... Um, you know, I, I use Michael Jordan as sort of the, the, the symbolic figure who at the beginning of the summer was this sort of sheepish college kid whose coach was making him go to the NBA. Michael Jordan would rather have stayed in college. And uh, by the end of the summer, Michael Jordan was a millionaire many times over. He had an Olympic medal. He had a signature shoe. And it struck me that that pretty much mirrored the, the arc of sports that summer, that it started in one place and in a very short amount of time, it sort of had, had blossomed into the the big business, uh, you know, big media property that, that it is uh, today. That a lot, a lot happened in that summer and a lot happened in a very short amount of time. Well, we've had some fun talking about it in the newsroom. Go through some of the things because there are things that we in the sports world, to some extent, right, John, take for granted today. But as you said, that summer was pivotal for something like an ESPN Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of this was just, you know, the Michael Jordan, uh, I mean, one of my favorites is the NBA got a new commissioner, a guy named David Stern, this, mm-hmm. this lawyer who made people who worked with him miserable and had all sorts of ideas about media and globalization. So Michael, so David Stern is on the job for uh, you know a few months and he gets his first NBA final and it's magic in the Lakers against Larry Bird and the Celtics. So he gets this dream NBA finals. It goes seven games. It's on network TV, which wasn't always a given uh, for the NBA. And then a few. Days later, he presides over his first draft when Michael Jordan gets selected. So that's a pretty good week for uh, for David Stern. And then you, you just sort of go down the list, and it's you know Wayne Gretzky won his first Stanley Cup, and there was an Olympics that was profitable, and you know Donald Trump entered the scene through sports, buying a football team. But so, so you had all these coincidences. But I think what what really became clear to me when I did the reporting mm-hmm. is two things. A, a this was the summer. I mean, you mentioned ESPN. This was the summer of cable. Mm-hmm. And cable really turned a corner, whether it was MTV or whether it was CNN or whether it was ESPN was sold to ABC that summer. And smart people at ESPN realized, wait a second, we shouldn't be paying the cable systems to get on their offering of channels. They should be paying us a subscriber fee. And the cable, uh, you know, it was a game of chicken. And basically um, ESPN wasn't the one that blinked. And so the subscriber fee that started out as a few pennies and would then grow to about $7 a month. You know, that's really the secret sauce behind ESPN success. They, they sell their 30-second commercial blocks, but they make most of their money from these subscriber fees. And the other thing that happened that summer, and again, I think Michael Jordan was mm-hmm. kind of the exemplar, a- athletes recognized 
their platform and their value. And it wasn't really political. You know, this was sort of Reagan 80s. This was not about activism and then social and political activism. But athletes realized, wait a second, I shouldn't be doing that for free. Or wait, wait a second, if Nike wants to give me a shoe, <laughs> they should be paying me too. And mm-hmm. I think that Michael Jordan doesn't get enough credit for that. He's not a political activist. He's not, you know, Muhammad Ali or Bill Russell or Colin Kaepernick. But what he did to empower athletes starting in that summer of 1984 I I think he doesn't get enough credit for that. Well, there's a line in your introduction. You said most of Bloomington looked at Michael Jordan somewhat indifferently in the summer of 1984 as he ordered a smoothie at the chocolate mousse ice cream joint or lost 18 holes of putt-putt only to shoot the winner, a a scalding stare and demand an immediate rematch. But it's just interesting that, right, someone incredibly unknown and then almost in the snap of a fingers was a game changer, a lasting one in terms of sports overall, certainly, you know, when it comes to basketball, but even more broadly. And just got about 40 seconds, then we'll come back and talk more. Yeah, I mean, uh, Michael Jordan was running around my hometown and it wasn't a big deal. He didn't have an entourage, he didn't have security, he didn't have an agent. Some of that is cute and nostalgic and, oh, sports were so much more pure back (laughs) then. But part of that is athletes were really undervalued. And the notion that Michael Jordan was sort of at the mercy of, of these coaches and, and didn't have an entourage, I, I think says something in itself. I want to get back to John Wertheim, executive editor, senior writer of Sports Illustrated, contributing correspondent for 60 Minutes. He's got a new book out, Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. So David Stern, former NBA commissioner, is in the book. Was, was he a big influence? It seemed like it. Um, yeah, both, both on me and the book and also on uh, all these trends that we've been talking about. Uh, he, he was wonderful, and obviously it's a pity he you know, passed away a bit more than a year ago. Right, um, right. But he was great. I mean, he, 1984 was, was literally when he took over this commissionership, and he had a lot of ideas, and people thought he was crazy. He talked about how pretty soon we were going to move out of a world of network TV, and we'd be able to watch sports on all these cable networks, hmm. and no one quite knew what to make of it. And he said... All you need is a ball and a hoop for the sport. Why can't we export this? Why, why can't they follow the NBA globally? Why are we thinking of ourselves as just a, an American league? Why are we trying to internationalize this? And that, of course, is at the core of, of the NBA strategy today. He, he saw a lot. Uh, he, he saw around a lot of these corners in, in 1984, and uh, he was great. I mean, he, he sort of um, – when I told him about the book, he didn't quite get it. And then he's like, you know, the more I think about it, like, oh, yeah, an awful, an awful <laughs> lot happened then. And the fact that he sort of had this role, I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he wasn't particularly well known um, yeah. when he took over the job and the NBA wasn't particularly popular. And again, uh, you can sort of chart, chart the NBA's growth starting in 1984. That's, that's a record any executive would uh, would be proud of. You know, you talk about David Stern kind of projecting kind of where things were going and forecasting where things were going. You also talk about, and we, you know, today take technology for granted in everything we do, but you go back to the LA Olympics again, 1984. I had family members who went there and um, technology was really having its impact on the Olympics as well, the 1984 Olympics. Yeah, I mean, 1984 also was, was the year uh, that you had this, this cube-like, it looked like a food processor, and it was a computer, and they called it the Mac, and everyone uh, sort of tried to figure out if, if computers finally were, were here to stay. Um, they had, you know, the personal computer was something I only use at the office. So it was, it was sort of the, the summer of Mac, but also, you're right, at the 84 Olympics, they really sort of redefined what it meant to be an Olympic sponsor. And P- Peter Ubroth ran this very successful Olympics, 
And one thing he did, he had these these technology firms. So it was both uh, both AT and T and IBM, and they had something called the EMS, the Electronic Messaging Service. And they told the athletes, "You don't need to pick up a phone. You could send a message to someone electronically if you put in your password and get on one of our you know get, get on one of our monitors, get on one of our computer terminals. You can send messages electronically." And very few athletes took advantage of it. But you know, you, you look back, and it was one of the very first email networks and uh sort of um they they basically demoed it at the 1984 olympics motorola distributing pagers like that takes us back right hey listen (laughs) um we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about tennis i know it's something you write so eloquently about you are passionate about the u.s open is coming up uh what are your expectations it's going to be back right Will um, <laughs> or will it? Not with it. No, I think. So. I mean, honestly, I, I think so. I mean, okay. if, they're, if they're, you know, we're packing Madison Square Garden, I think we'll be okay for an outdoor tennis event. I mean, I think. I think we talked about this last year. I mean, the the interesting part of this is, you know, part of it is the fan experience. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, I think. Uh, I think, especially since we're outdoors, we'll be okay. I think the really interesting thing is going to be our companies ready to use the U.S. Open for for hospitality, which is a huge source of revenue and it's a huge part of the U.S. Open experience for a lot of firms. Are we at a point where, you know, the the fans will be in the stands and the fans will be on the grounds, but are we at a point where these companies that historically have rented these suites and used the tennis as entertainment, are they going to be ready to take clients back to suites? Is is it appropriate, Mm -hmm. uh, both health standards and also sort of optics? And, you know, I, I, I hope the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes, but I just got back uh, whatever today, you know, a few days ago for the French Open. Right. And there was very little hospitality. Really? Part of that was yeah. protocol. You know, part of that was, was Western Europe, uh, they, they are not where we are in terms of getting out of this thing. Right. But I also think some firms said, you know what, I'm not sure it's a great look after what we've been through the last 16 months. I'm not sure it's a great look to have everybody, you know, eating canapes and drinking champagne <laughs> in this uh, field suite. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I think I think that's the question. I mean, the U.S. Open, it, it'll happen. It won't be like last year. Yeah, We'll all get to go as fans if we want to, but I think it'll be interesting to see how many of these suites get sold. Naomi Osaka, she withdrew from the French Open, uh, and she talked about reasons related to mental health. You know, you've covered the sport. You've covered a lot of athletes. She's not the first one, you know, to talk about either depression or anxiety. Um, there's a lot of stress and pressure on these athletes. And she even talked about, you know, how hard it is to, to speak to the media. It makes her nervous. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think, um, you know, you, you, you say she's not the first and you're, and you're right. I do think it was sort of significant that an athlete at the peak of her powers, mm-hmm. I mean, she's highest paid female athlete. She's won the last two majors she entered. I mean, she's really sort of, uh, this is peak Naomi point, and for her to sort of have this sort of revelation at this stage, I thought was, I thought it was courageous. I also thought it was sort of culturally fascinating. I mean, this is not the way um, athletes behaved or characterized their conditions 20 years ago when I started covering sports. I, I do think if you're in tennis, you, you knew that she's had these challenges. She's talked mm-hmm. about it. She's, she's pretty upfront about it. I, I thought it was really at best tone deaf and at worst something, uh, you know, more, you know, malicious even that the tournaments responded the way they did. This was not about an athlete that was trying to pay her way out of something that was inconvenient. This was not about an athlete who was grandstanding or being self-righteous. 
this wasn't you know defiance. Mm. This was a this was a, a broken this was a broken human being. Right. And I, I thought the um, you know I mean she probably could have handled this better, but I think really more of the blame rests on the adults who were not very um, sensitive or empathetic yeah. or read the room particularly well and sort of cast her as a you know this, this rebellious troublemaker and that wasn't what it was at all. John, thank you so much. Always love hearing from you. Wish you good luck with this book and and look forward to talking with you. And I got to say, I got to love just looking at the pictures from Larry Bird to um, Bob Knight to I was a gymnast, Mary Lou Retton. So that really kind of stands out for me. Martina Navratilova. It was a remarkable summer. So good luck with the book and look forward to catching up with you again soon. John Wertheim, check out his new book, Glory Days, the Summer of 84 and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever.